Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Greetings, everyone. Welcome to New Books in Finance, a channel of the New Books Network. I am your host, Daniel Paris. I'm delighted to have as my guest today, Spencer Jacob. He is the Heard on the Street columnist for the Wall Street Journal. Spencer, thank you so much for agreeing to be on the show. Thanks for having me. Uh, you have written a, a book that's just come out, is The Revolution That Wasn't, GameStop, Reddit, and the Fleecing of Small Investors, just out from Portfolio and Imprint of Penguin. It's going to be a must-read book of 2022. Uh, it's just a gripping tale of the uh, Wall Street Bets uh, subreddit and uh, how GameStop got caught up in that. You have a very interesting introduction as to why you fell into this. Why don't you uh, provide a brief introduction of how you you went down this particular rabbit hole? There are many other rabbit holes associated with this story. Well, it's dedicated to my, my three sons, uh, who I think I would have dedicated any book to, uh, frankly, uh, although I dedicate it to my three apes. Uh, and apes, um, as you may or may not know, is what the uh, members of the subreddit and just generally fans of meme stock call themselves these days, apes. And the way that I came to write it, I mean, Wall Street Bets is really at the, the center of the story, although it's not a story about Wall Street Bets, I have to say. And Wall Street Bets is a a subreddit, one of about 100,000 subreddits that exist on Reddit, these communities where people discuss things. And it existed for some number of years. And I became aware of it about a year before the events in the story take place. You know, we sit at the Wall Street Journal, we'd see some stock go up 50%, 100%, look for news, wonder what had happened. And so, oh yeah, they Wall Street bets is on it. You know, they sort of, you know, and for 24 or 48 hours, the stock would, would go crazy, you know, and had you known about that, you would have made a lot of money, but it, it wasn't the kind of thing that professional investors took very seriously. It was all really funny. And sometimes they would, they would buy the wrong company. Like somebody would talk about a company and they'd buy a company that sounded like that, or had a really similar ticker symbol, or was a bankrupt company that had no value. And then some poor guy, uh, who was kind of late to the game would get stuck holding it. Uh, and then one morning, in, in January of 2021, uh, actually the exactly a year before the publication date of this book, it just so happens, 
Uh, I was home editing a column for the Wall Street Journal. My oldest boy, who was then a college senior, came over. And, you know, he, he's a bright boy, but he's not super duper interested in, in what I'm doing at work. Uh, he's interested in other stuff. And he said, you know, Dad, are you, are you writing about GameStop? And uh, I said, no, why would I be writing about GameStop? You know, it's like this kind of going out of business company. I had taken him to GameStop. Uh, about a thousand times and his brothers too to get video games and swap them and stuff like that and we hadn't been there for a long time not just because of the pandemic just because it's sort of a it's like blockbuster video was in the last few years you know uh before everything became digitized it was sort of becoming irrelevant and he said no because uh my friend my friend bought it a couple of days ago and doubled his money and so i look up the share price and said wow that's that's great you know it looks like they wrote about it on wall street bets but he should get out no, he's not going to get out. So what do you mean he's not going to get out? I mean, what, you know, what does that even mean? You know, he made money, you know, he should sell at some point. And he said, no, he's not going to sell. And so I started reading the forum and within probably 10 minutes, I, I was amazed because what I saw was something different than anything that had happened before on the forum. And, and what I saw was that they were getting together to do something that really is sort of almost impossible to do these days, which is to find some people who are vulnerable in financial markets, no, take that information, and then legally squeeze them. Uh, and what they created was a, a short squeeze. They found some hedge funds that were horribly overexposed, and they said, let's get these guys. They discussed the plans out in the open. They bought as many shares and options in the, this stock as possible, and they sent it to the moon. And part of the reason it went to the moon is that there was this distressed purchasing by gigantic hedge funds. Let's just stop there for a moment. Although most of the audience will understand what a short squeeze is, it's worth always stopping uh, and just explaining that for some of the audience. You know, we are kind of doctors, lawyers uh, who are in the markets, but might not know exactly how a short squeeze works. If you could just provide a brief introduction to that. Of course. So there are two things you can do. Most of us, um, me and, and probably almost everybody listening to this, you buy an investment like a stock or a fund or, or whatever, and you hope it goes up. But there are people in the market, and uh, they're not like uh, bad guys or anything. It's just a, a part of the market uh, who make the opposite bet. They're not most of the market because they're betting against a pretty long trend. Stocks rise in the long run. But what they do is they bet that stocks will fall. And the main way that they do that is they sell the stock without owning it. And what that means is that they will sell the stock to somebody. You might buy a stock from a short seller. When you buy a stock in the market, it could very well be a short seller on the other end of the transaction. You don't know. It's just a normal sale, except that that person doesn't own it. So they've basically taken an unlimited risk because the most that they can make by selling a stock is that it, it goes to zero and then they make 100% on, on their money, basically the most they can lose is infinity. So it's the reverse of what you do. When you buy a stock, you could lose all the money you put in that stock and that would be bad, but that's all you would lose. You can't lose more than you invested. They can lose a thousand times what they invested if things really go badly for them. And so they have to be very careful in terms of, of what they choose to bet against. And in a short squeeze, what happens is that uh, some some piece of news or some activity goes on that makes the shares of the stock go up and maybe go up sharply. And if people know that there are a lot of short sellers who are betting against it, then it'll especially go up sharply because they know that these guys are losing a lot of money. 
And if they lose enough money, they're going to have to jump in and kind of pile on themselves, pile on the bandwagon by also buying the stock and forcing it higher. And, you know, that that has happened, you know, tens of thousands of times over history. But back in the, the old days before there was an SEC, there used to be all kinds of wild speculations where people would bankrupt each other doing this, where they would find out that someone was short stock and they would buy up every available share, you know, and charge them. Basically, they say like, you know, you bought it for ten dollars. They pay me a million dollars a share. Pay me a billion dollars a share, whatever, and bankrupt them uh, doing this. And that that hasn't been legal for a long time. Um, and and the so the incredible thing that I I noticed pretty quickly is that that's what was going on. That they were trying to squeeze these guys on purpose out in the open. It's the kind of thing that like if if two or three hedge funds got together and made a backroom deal to do it those guys would be going to jail or, or face serious fines. But when you have a million people do it on a message board, what, what are you going to do about it? In the open, essentially. Yeah, they weren't. They weren't hiding it. They were, you could read the board. I don't think that until this happened, I don't think that people on Wall Street really did read the board because it was sort of, a, they knew about it mostly, but it was kind of like a big joke. It was full of memes and, and they, you know, they weren't very sophisticated to put it mildly, but, uh, you better believe they read it or they, they, I would say they pay people to read it and they, they have created software that, that reads these boards, uh, very carefully if they're going to do anything like selling a stock short. So, uh, it's worth noting again for 401k listeners that, uh, shorting is generally done by professional speculators or hedge funds as you call yep. them. And, and they're done in institutions. They also tend to borrow the shares and, and the squeeze occurs when they have to return them and they have to pay for them, buy them back in the marketplace. And so they do borrow shares from long uh, owners. To do yeah. a naked squeeze, I believe it's called a naked short squeeze, is even more dangerous. In most cases, I think these uh, these hedge funds that were involved in GameStop uh, had been borrowing the shares. But the key element of a small company like GameStop or some other is that there aren't too many shares to borrow. So it's effectively the same thing. You you really struggle in a short squeeze to, to uh, meet your obligation. And if you can't meet your obligation, you're going to get a knock from uh, on the door from the SEC. So hence, hence the squeeze. Totally. Yeah. I mean, and, and the, so the one other odd feature that, and that was the part of the setup to this is that GameStop was like a real, just a loser company. AMC was a loser company. I mean, Blackberry, Bed Bath and Beyond, Nokia, those were all, they're all companies that were on the outs. They, maybe they weren't headed for bankruptcy, but some of them were, and they all were were has-beens. They were sort of companies that, like maybe in 2001, you would have been excited about, but not 2021. And and so these short sellers felt very safe shorting the companies because what's the worst thing that can happen? Like let's say some guy comes in and says, "I'm going to buy GameStop for 20% more than it's worth." Well, they they'll have a really bad day, but that's kind of it. They have so many positions that it doesn't matter. And the one of the people at the center of the squeeze, it's not like all he did was sell stock short either. Gabe Plotkin, who was one of the hottest fund managers on Wall Street, maybe the hottest, uh, had um, the most to lose here because he had a, a, a fund that owned retailers and consumer companies. And so he mostly was long in the sense that he mostly did what, what you and I do. He buys stocks and he holds them and he tried to find good stocks. And that's what like a normal mutual fund manager would do. But on top of that, he said, I'm going to use some borrowed money to buy more of those. And the borrowed money that I'm going to use is the money that I raise from 
selling the stock that I don't actually own yet. So he's saying, you know, because maybe Best Buy will have a, a bad winter season, but then GameStop will have an even worse one. And so they'll both go down, but I'll kind of be insulated from that. Or maybe everything's going to go up. There'll be just a huge rally in the, the entire stock market. But this good stock that I own is going to go up more than that bad stock that I'm, I'm betting against. So that's, that's kind of his business. And so he never in a million years would have imagined this happening to him. And, and Gabe Plotkin, uh, his company is called Melvin Capital, lost about $6 billion you know, in this period of, of several days that I'm describing. Instead of buying low and selling high, they had to. They sold low and were forced to buy high. The, the yeah, reverse. Yeah, very high. Very high. <laughs> very high indeed. Let's back yeah. up a little bit because what I think is really good about your book is that in addition to telling the tale, the blow by blow account, you introduce the actors and the institutions. And a moment in the stock market, a moment of human foible can happen. But in order for what happened in January of 2021 to happen, you needed institutions, you needed a a new type of brokerage, you needed the hedge funds, you needed a new form of social media, the the Reddit communities. I, in my age and your age, it was Yahoo Finance boards, but Mm -hmm. now that does it's you know it's it's the, the subreddits, and all you needed a kind of a light regulatory hand. You needed a mood, uh, a divided country, and it wasn't just. And uh, events like a company getting into trouble and being shorted a hedge fund, that occurs every day. But you capture the maelstrom of all of these factors hitting at once, which is why it was on the news and the scale got really, really large. As you said, a, a short, you know, sh- buying a, shorting a stock at five and having to buy it back at seven is no big deal. And that happens all the time for a, a, what's called a long short uh, hedge fund. But uh, selling it at four you know, five and having to buy it back at 423 or whatever the, the peak was, is it, that required almost a unique circumstance. And, and let's, uh, I think, uh, introduce the, the listeners to, to Robinhood, to the uh, other players that allowed this all to happen in this moment in time. Yeah. A lot of things happened at once and it was just really a perfect combination, a perfect storm, if you will. Uh, one thing that happened is that for uh, years and years, um, commissions were getting lower and lower. You know, you used to pay a lot to trade. Then you paid maybe $30 when discount brokers appeared. Then you paid $10 and people thought that was amazing. Then it went to 5 6 or $7. Robinhood, uh, it wasn't the first one to do this, but it was the first one to make it popular, came in and they did two things. They said, uh, we're going to charge zero uh, commissions. And we are not really a, a, a broker that has a, a website and an app. We're an app and there's a broker attached to it. So what they wanted to do was have a really beautiful, really intuitive, alluring app on smartphones. They were born during the smartphone era and they were app first. And they made this app that what bears a lot of similarity to sports gambling apps. And uh, I, I can discuss that more why that why that is it's not a coincidence at all uh that it resembles sports gambling apps and the way that it it enticed you and rewarded you bears a lot of similarity to it too and finally they in 2019 uh they had gained over the last few years they had gone from this tiny minnow compared to schwab and fidelity and all these guys to capturing about half of all new brokerage accounts that were opened now the the accounts that people opened with them were really small accounts it was 
like college kids with like 50 bucks and a hundred. Your bucks. son, pray tell. No, my sons, uh, my sons don't, but their friends do. Their friends almost all do. And uh, yeah, I, I would say, um, so I have three sons. Uh, one is, is too young to have a brokerage account. None of them, they all ha- have like, they, I've just bored them to death about just buy and hold and buy index funds and stuff like that. So that's, that's all they, they do there. They're like the, the most boring and steady of, of their cohort, but their friends definitely do. And they trade cryptocurrencies and they do all this stuff. And so uh, it was lots of mostly, not exclusively, mostly young people, mostly with not very much money, a lot less money than a Schwab customer would have, like a lot, lot less. And uh, finally Schwab and Fidelity and all these big guys just had to throw in the towel and say, you know, we were, we're not so many customers we're not getting because we're not offering zero and we can do it. It doesn't matter. We can, we can offer $0 commissions. We make money a lot of other ways. We'll bite the bullet. It's going to cost us a lot of money. But what happened is it did not cost them a lot of money. It actually made them a lot of money. And they discovered something about economics and human nature, which is that when you take the price of certain things and, and make them zero, then this switch goes off in people's heads. And you're like, well, it doesn't cost anything. And if it's, you know, if it's like, you know, going out and, um, I give the example of like buying snow shovels. If like snow shovels were free, you wouldn't have two snow shovels. You only need one, right? And but something that's fun, uh, you can you can do it as as much as you want. And there's no limit really to how often you can trade. There are people who traded ten thousand times a year on Robinhood or more, and and people just went crazy. Not everybody went crazy, but lots of people went crazy and began trading a lot more. Then what you had was the pandemic, and the pandemic did several things all at once. First of all. It, it closed down uh, sports and sports gambling, which had become very popular, that young cohort. It sent people home and they were bored and they didn't have other activities to that they normally did uh, or their friends to see. They were in mom's basement and they had a bit of extra money because they got a stimulus check or they weren't paying rent or they got an un- unemployment check or just money that they were spending going out on Friday night was not being spent. They had a little bit of extra money. This is like a cohort that kind of spends money as soon as it makes it. All of a sudden, they had savings. There's their savings rate shot through the roof. And they started opening accounts and trading stocks. It's very easy to open. And Robinhood is not the only company in the genre, but it's the biggest one. It's the definitive one. They're Webull and eToro. But they opened a lot of accounts and they started trading a tremendous amount. And usually, when something really bad happens in the stock market, people kind of freeze up and, and stop trading or they sell and then run away. But the opposite happened here. And, and you'll recall that the stock market had this rapid plunge, the biggest, most rapid plunge into a bear market from a bull market, from a, a, an all-time peak ever. And then it had the fastest rebound ever by an order of magnitude when all the stimulus came in and you know the, the Fed started buying everything you know that wasn't nailed down. And so the market had, was incredibly volatile. And because people on Robinhood, in that today, it's easy enough to bet against stocks as it is to bet on stocks. It was just a great game. Like it was an addictive game that, that they got into. And, and it just set off this frenzy of speculation. And you drew millions of young people who had never bought a stock before into the market. So you have a couple factors at play here. You have unique kind of socioeconomic dynamics of of people with with money, younger people with money. You have uh, the acronyms, uh, the behavioral finance acronym, fear of missing out. A lot of people wanted to get in on that. But let's discuss the the plumbing a little bit because I think a lot of our listeners 
We'll find the institutions behind this interesting. When you don't pay for something, when you don't pay for a product, whatever the product is, it's probably the case that you are the product. And in zero cost commissions, that's pretty much the case. How does Robinhood or any other zero, uh, not not uh, the zero offerings of larger brokerages, mm-hmm. which as you say, have other ways of making money, but in a dedicated zero commission, so-called brokerage, it's really a front for a brokerage because as you point out, it's not a brokerage itself, but... Uh, uh, how 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 is the money being made? How can they afford the fancy web developers uh, if they're not charging anything for the service? And of course, that's a trick question. They yeah. it, it turns out the orders themselves are the product. That's right. I mean, just the way that like when you go on Facebook and you're very active and you put up pictures of your entire family and you click on a million things, you're the product. You're looking at advertisements. You're providing all kinds of data to them, and you are the product with these free brokers as well, and especially something like Robinhood. Now. There might be a larger broker that has $0 commissions that does the same thing that Robinhood does, but they're much less dependent on the way that Robinhood makes money. Robinhood has customers, their, their, their median customer has $241 in their account. It's nothing. I mean, you couldn't even have opened a brokerage account many years ago with, with $241. And why would you have? Because you, you, know, you just chewed through it really quickly. But they send their orders and their orders... Instead of going to the stock exchange, they go to a market maker, which is not really insidious, um, but it's, it explains how this, this happens. So their companies, Citadel is the biggest one. Citadel Securities, I should specify, uh, is the biggest one. Uh, but there are Virtu, uh, the Susquehanna. There are a handful of companies that do this. And they're basically like miniaturized stock exchanges. So there are about 15 stock exchanges where your orders could go, where it's an actual stock exchange. There's a bid. There's an offer. You put your order through, and even though there's so many so many orders, you can't see it. But one of you, those orders was your order. It went through the stock exchange. When it goes to one of these companies, it's dark. It's not lit. So you don't know who bought it, who sold it, what happened to it, how it happened. All you know is you said, I want to buy two shares of Tesla, and your money goes out of your account, and two shares of Tesla go into your account. And behind that is this, this firm with you know, in huge computing power that matches up buys and sells, it takes a little bit of risk doing it and gives you at least as good of a price uh, as a stock exchange. So it's, it's ironically, it's one of the few areas where you get treated as well or better than a, like a, a big mutual fund might, uh, because they love dealing with small fry like you. It's profitable to deal with small fry like you. It's not profitable to deal with someone who's really savvy and has a lot of money. Small fry uh, are are reckless. They don't, you know, demand a really, really tough price. They don't dump a million dollars of stock on you at once, and and force you to pay that price. And so they they love retail investors. The the more reckless, the smaller, the better. It's also probably worth noting that market makers are an important function within the market for price stability. There's they're willing to, as you said, take a small amount of risk. They're willing to take. Uh, either side of the transaction, if there isn't at that particular moment when you want to buy or sell someone else on the other side. So they do put uh, some of their own capital at work uh, and they're aggregating these small orders and maybe you get one-tenth of a penny less better price than you otherwise would, but you won't notice it. You'll find you'll get your two shares of whatever company. and But those one-tenth of a penny uh, adds up for these, these market makers. And at the end of the day, with very high volumes, they have a very nice business and a uh, brokerage front or an app can offer zero-cost commissions. And it seems like everyone's sort of 
happy, has has reason to be happy. The uh, small investors can participate. Uh, a front can, uh, and I use the word front literally as a narrative, meaning a, an app uh, can offer zero cost commissions, and the plumbing in the back uh, is is designed to handle it so that they, they also make a profit. So it kind of works. It makes sense. There's nothing, as you said, there's nothing insidious about. It's called payment for order flow. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's nothing insidious about other than at the basic logical level of zero commissions that uh, as long as the customers realize they are the product. But they, but they don't. But they, they don't. But they don't realize that. They probably should. So, yeah. And and it, it's funny because like payment for workflow. If you had asked a uh, hundred guys, or if you asked a thousand guys on on Robinhood what payment for workflow was at random a week before these events, they wouldn't have been able to tell you. I think maybe one person would have you know vaguely known about it. But that's how Robinhood made about eighty percent of its money. And by the way, some of the money that it made was lending out those shares of stock. So when they had shares in their account. Uh, they also made money lending it to those short sellers who were the sort of evil, reviled hedge fund guys who were sort of seen as the enemy by the Wall Street bets crowd. They they lent, you know, that the share lending is a pretty big business uh, from for these brokerages. But yeah, most of the money came was paid by Citadel and Virtu and these other companies to Robinhood, and Robinhood keeps it. You know, they they don't that that's that's how they that's how they pay the bills and keep the lights on is selling your order basically, and so. For that reason, Robinhood is very interested in having you make as many orders as possible. The more you trade, the more they make. Um, and you know, guess what? The more you trade, I mean, there have been numerous. The more you lose, the more you lose. Simple. I mean, it's, it's, it's that it's, simple. It's, it's, it's perfectly correlated. There's an inverse correlation between how active you are in the stock market and what your returns are. It's it's been shown uh, time and time again. It even is true, the more often you look at your investments, uh, the worse you do. So we have all the ingredients. And uh, we have a technology, we have social media, we have people at home, we have maybe people with some edge, and we'll get to the edge because the names on the social media are are somewhat explicit for a family show, but we'll mention them all the same. Uh, we have the plumbing, we have a national crisis, and you put it all there. and but. The catalyst, uh, from my perspective, ironically, is the only sympathetic character in the entire in the entire <laughs> book. He both he he lit the fire, but he's kind of the only good guy. And I don't know if that was intentionally the way you you write the narrative, but he comes off as the only sympathetic character. Some of the other characters are not unsympathetic; they're just not as sympathetic as he is. So let's start with the catalyst and how that. How this uh, conflagration begins uh, with one fellow making some statements, perfectly reasonable statements, and boom, unintended or intended consequences, and you have a moment in history resulting just a few months later. Yeah, I mean, that's uh, I guess it's the the great man theory of history, right? You had um, this guy; his name is is Keith Gill, and uh, he was uh, was is he's still alive, uh, un, un, unassuming, bright guy who uh, had gotten his first really good job uh, working for an insurance company, Mass Mutual, in their financial education division. He uh, was actually pretty financially sophisticated. He got his chartered financial analyst uh, designation, which was a pretty top series of exams to pass, was very interested in investing. And, you know, he was writing this financial education stuff, living in suburban Boston, and decided that, uh, and he was really into value investing. He was actually co- totally different than a lot of the uh, the young people on the show. He uh, would find a stock that he thought was bombed out. He wouldn't, you know, zig and zag a lot. He was, you know, 
He wasn't really a braggart, uh, like a lot of the people are on these sites. And he started posting on this subreddit, and then later he started making videos on YouTube. And no one paid attention. People ridiculed him. He said, I'm, I'm buying GameStop. And then it would double. And people say, oh, you doubled your money. You should, you should sell. And uh, it, rather, he, he, it didn't double, but he doubled his money because he was using options, which are very volatile. And uh, he said, no, no, no. I, as a matter of fact, I'm sad that, that it went up because I wanted to buy more, which is completely the reverse way of thinking that you see on this bulletin board. And people thought he was a, a nut job. Very few people watched his videos. And then as GameStop became this, uh, this object that was sort of shorted, that was bet against by so many funds, uh, people noticed all these videos that, and posts that he had done about why GameStop was worth more. And he would just basically, you know, make post some funny memes and, uh, and show a screenshot about once a month of his account. Is he- but his, his argument in favor of owning GameStop long was what we would consider a, a fundamental argument. It was not a speculative. He was pointing out that, listen, yeah, it's companies washed out, stocks washed out, but the company has prospects. Ben Graham, Warren Buffett-ish, but let's call it Ben Graham-ish yeah. value arguments. He wasn't he wasn't appear at, at certainly at that stage. He wasn't did not appear to be using the language of speculation. He appeared to be using the language of value investing. Totally, and and this this guy has he, he's thirty four years old at the time that the the sort of the, the main events take place had like ice water in his veins. You know, he was he held on through thick and thin, and and that is what uh, turned out to sort of build his legend. Uh, he was he was that way well before. You know, he, he was a social media star. He had maybe 20 people listening to his, his videos at a time or, or not even. And I, I, they, I don't think they listened to the whole thing because some of them went on for four hours and he went into a lot of, of detail that it might, might have been over the heads of the viewers, frankly. And he just would ramble on and it was like, you know, just gesticulating and he loved it. Uh, but, you know, he wasn't sure that he was right. He was, you know, he was just confident that he was right, which is what a value investor does. And he just made a really big concentrated bet and never wavered. And then he started to get an inkling that like, in addition to my thesis, there might be a possible short squeeze because uh, there were signs when all the, these people dove into the market that, that that could happen. And the the level of short interest in GameStop specifically was so high that it was more than the the actual value of the shares outstanding. So the, the bets, so basically some of the, the, the stock was borrowed, sold, and then the people who bought that stock lent it out again. So it was borrowed again. So you get a situation where, and the book covers the, the some of the numbers, and you don't have to be a quantitative person to understand that, you know, 150% of the shares are, are, are out short. You can't kind of, that, that's a problem. Mathematically, yeah. that's not going to end well. But if you if you borrow short, borrow short, buy, and then over and over again, you can get to that situation. Often it's a case uh, for larger companies, you know, 50% outstanding is a big deal if they're short, 80%, whatever, but 150, it's the first time I'd ever seen that before. Yeah, it, it almost never has happened. It's one of the highest ever. And, and the reason these guys felt so confident is like, it's GameStop. I mean, who cares, right? I mean, who's going to sort of, what's going to happen? What's, what could go wrong? And also, uh, 2020 was a terrible year for short sellers. As a matter of fact, it was a terrible few years for short sellers. It was probably the most loss-making year in history, maybe with the exception of this year, uh, in, in the history of short selling, uh, because so many stocks that were just dumb stocks, to, for lack of a better word, went up. Kind of, you know, somebody would say, I'm going to make a, a hydrogen truck. 
you know, and then that truck company would be worth more than like uh, two of the biggest truck companies in the world, you know, and you, you bet against it and then it go up some more, you know, I mean, it, it just nothing made sense. Tesla uh, was probably the, the stock on which they lost the most by far. And so, you know, short sellers, of, short sellers, short, short sellers, yeah, exactly. Yeah. And so, so it's not like they were in fine fettle when this, this episode begins, but then they looked at something like, you know, GameStop, what's going to happen? You know, no one cares about GameStop. It's not, they're not going to invent the hydrogen, you know, garbage truck there. You know, it's, it's GameStop. They're slowly going out of business and maybe, you know, maybe they'll catch a break and, and hang on another year or two, but you know, GameStop is, is dead, put a fork in it, you know? Um, yeah. So, so that's, that's why they were so confident and it was they were overconfident it was hubris and then there's one last one last element to the to the fire igniting the fire the catalyst and it's almost politics and it's sort of sticking it to the man and it, this feeds into the title of your book the revolution and, and spoiler the title of the book is the revolution that wasn't so mm-hmm. uh it didn't quite work out the way the revolutionaries were thinking but the subreddit uh boards became a a platform for arguing against the man, right. and uh, then ga- this all became concentrated in in the case of this particular security. So you have one very very smart, dedicated value investor on a platform which is filled with very energetic young people uh, with a chip, maybe uh, on their shoulders. Who knows? And you know, what what was the difference between one week and the next week when you know it's at f- people are talking about this, but the shares are I don't know five or ten dollars, so people are losing or making a little bit of money, and within a period of days it goes up to a couple hundred dollars. H- how did that play out, and what was the catalyst for those those sharp movements? Well, really, in in late 2020, you had more and more talk of the potential for a short squeeze, and and that was when. You know, if, if you were Gabe Plotkin or any of these other people, you, you should have taken notice. And um, you know, you know, they 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 did take some notice, but they didn't take it seriously. That their names were appearing on social media. Why would somebody on social media, on this this site where small investors, you know, be mentioning their name? But they just didn't take it seriously. But they should have because the number of mentions of these stocks was going up and up and up. And you know, it it was. The, the thing about social media today, which is different than the Yahoo uh, Finance message boards that we were talking about at the beginning of the show, which is, is that they're far more powerful. And so you, I hate to say that like that this time is different because that's like those, are, they say the, the four most dangerous words in investing. This time is never different. The psychology of markets is always the same. And that's true, but the underlying conditions are different uh, in the sense that the technologies that exist, we don't uh, read a ticker tape anymore. We, you know, we have live prices on our phones. We can trade right away. We don't have to pay anything. Uh, we can get together with people. And what kind of messages do we see when we go on social media? Well, this guy, Keith Gill, uh, Roaring Kitty, and he has one more name that's uh, not, not a PG rated, but Deep Effing Value, which is, was his, his pseudonym on, on uh, Reddit. He was anonymous until the, the events were kind of winding down. Um, all of a sudden rose to the top. So if you were to go on the site, the first thing that you would see every day when this was going on was just a screenshot of his account statement. Once a day, he put a screenshot of his account statement. People were like, he's not selling. If he's not selling, I'm not selling. This guy, this guy has, you know, the hugest balls ever. I'm going to buy, I'm going to pile in. And so you basically had a stampede into the shares and there was resentment against the man. And the man is, you know, in their mind was hedge funds, Wall Street types, there were rich people. It wasn't all rich people because there's some rich people they like. Elon Musk, they like a lot. They do like a lot. And there are some wealthy people and they're influencers. 
who they like a lot, but specifically uh, Wall Street guys in suits with a lot of money they resented, probably because some of their earliest memories or their earliest financial experiences, probably like, you know, through their parents, uh, was the, all the negativity around the financial crisis. And they sort of, so they, you know, and they blame, you know, quote unquote, fat cats on Wall Street. And uh, it's it's stunning the difference again between generations. It would never occur to me or to you to put our uh, brokerage statement not and you and I can't do it because it's illegal for us to do it. But but to put our brokerage statement on a computer for everyone to see, yeah. even though probably parts of it were blacked out, still I I would never have come up with that. And it's only something a, a, of a different generation to do that. So really, just a completely striking different approach. And this builds on it. And we have we have a tulip mania, we have South Sea bonds, we have Mississippi company. Once it begins, those are all references to much older bubbles. Uh, as most of my audience knows, I, I spend a lot of time in financial history. And uh, once it builds, it's, it just builds on itself. And that appears to have been the case here. The, the short squeeze becomes dramatic. And once it's known as a short squeeze, then there's even more kind of motivation to to do so the problem is and again this is in the you know in the subtitle of your book and and the, and the second half of your book the the fleecing of small investors the the people who are driving this price up are sticking it to the short sellers but the short sellers are going to be fine they lost billions of dollars but they're still going to be fine the problem is that a lot of these smaller investors or buying shares or buying options that would, they're going to be stuck with the shares of a company that's maybe not in great shape at a very high price. And it worked for getting the man. It wasn't clear. And this is what your book ends on. We're not at the end, but it, you know, spends the second half of is that, you know, a lot of people who were doing this ended up making a really bad investment decision. Uh, and and that's the really the important part of this is the man did not get put in in his place, and the small investors really were the ones who who suffered more, frankly. Yeah, I mean, let's look at what happened. You had some people who were doing it who say, "I, I don't care about the money. I just wanted to make a statement. I wanted to jo to join this movement." Um, and you had other people who did it. I, I would say the majority who did it purely for the money, and you know they both lost really, uh, and it's it's sad because. The people who wanted to stick it to the man, well, who's the man? The man, you know, Wall Street writ large really likes it. It really likes it when you have a lot of people who think they figured something clever out and go and pour their money into Wall Street and think they can beat it or think they can outfox Wall Street. Those are the best times for Wall Street. Those are the, whether you go to the late 1920s, the late 1990s, any, any bullish period and, and the current period, uh, as much as any of those. And you have a bunch of, 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 people who sort of, and who could be very smart people. It's not, I'm not saying that they're dumb. You, as a matter of fact, smarter people tend to make bigger uh, financial errors than, uh, than people who are not that smart because the people who are not that smart. know they're not that smart. They don't kind of, uh, they're intimidated by it. People who are smart in one area of life think that they can translate the general smarts into that area. And then in this case, they also, there was a ton of peer reinforcement. There's a ton of social proof in terms of seeing people who claim to have made a lot of money or did make a lot of money and posted statements of, you know, showing how much money they'd made. And there, there was just this, this whole sort of, yeah, let's join something. Let's be part of something. And Wall Street got rich off of this. Wall Street has, was getting rich before, and it really got rich during this time and continued for months after from this, this frenzy of activity. And, you know, it's a zero-sum game in the sense that the dollar that you lose doesn't go to money heaven. It goes into someone's pocket somewhere. And in all likelihood, it went either into the, the pocket of some firm on Wall Street or an executive. The executives of these companies 
uh, were very cynical. You know, they they cashed out as much as possible. Some continue to cash out even as we're speaking, even in the the, the days uh, before this podcast was recorded. They basically took full advantage. Uh, they weren't all allowed to sell their stock immediately. If they were, they sold it. If they weren't, they held on and tried to kind of keep things going um, and and keep the temperature elevated in those stocks for a good long time so they could get out with tens of millions of dollars in, in profits that they didn't earn. They were These guys were running bad companies. It's not necessarily their fault, but they certainly didn't. It wasn't anything smart that they did. You know, they just happened to be sitting in the right place at the right time. They're already rich. And they made a lot of money, and these these young people are not rich, and a lot of them lost money. And by the way, these young people, even if someone, let's say someone goes in and they made five thousand uh, dollars off of this, and it was easy. Well, you know what? Like success is the worst teacher. If you go in, and the first thing you do in the stock market is you go in and you make a bundle, you're going to lose that money. It's just like if you walk into a, a, a casino and you beat the blackjack dealer, you're going to be very very confident in yourself, very full of it. You know, go out big night of the town, come back the next day. And, and probably lose it and lose more. And then there are people who uh, who lost money. And the worst thing isn't, let's say, losing a few thousand dollars when you're in your 20s, although it is very costly. Uh, the worst thing is saying, wow, Wall Street is crooked. Wall Street is rigged. This is not for me. And so you're giving up a, a lifetime of potentially of accumulating savings in a 401k or a brokerage account and having money to pay for all the things that you need when you're older in your retirement. If you if you completely distrust Wall Street and yeah, you know, I don't know, you're buying like NFTs or <laughs> whatever, Dogecoin instead. I mean, I don't think that you're, you're you're it's not going to compound as reliably as as just, you know, just owning stocks, which has been a kind of a, in the long run a surefire winner. So so you're costing yourself a lot by sort of by be, becoming disgusted. And the event that really made people disgusted with all this, uh, which we haven't gotten to yet, is that when all this was happening and they were, they thought that they had the, the hedge funds up against a wall and they were squeezing them and the price was going to go higher and higher and higher and a thousand and a million, Robinhood couldn't take it anymore. Robinhood uh, would have been insolvent for complicated reasons I can get into if you want me to explain, but Robinhood would have been insolvent and basically said, you can't buy any more of these stocks. You can sell, but you can't buy. It's it's worth just stopping and saying that it's really the plumbing behind Robinhood and Robinhood itself. There is a whole complex of businesses involving settlement and clearing and the chaos of shares trading hands so rapidly, uh, some of shares that were not owned when traded. The the back office basically called timeout and said, you can't do this anymore. And that's when Robinhood had to had to say, well, we can settle things, but we can't enter into new new things and you can't short anymore. And that really, that's the, the incident you're referring to, I'm assuming. Yes. And then you had every late night talk show host, you had all these politicians on the left, on the right, excoriating Robin Hood, trying to get to the bottom of it. That's when you had this, the, the congressional hearings called and all kinds of crazy statements. And, you know, from Donald Trump Jr. to Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, you know, you had people right across the political spectrum. That's the one, you know, this has happened a few weeks after the, the, um, the Capitol riots. And here was one thing that everybody could agree on, which was that something, some great crime had happened. And it turns out really, it, it, and one of the points of your book is actually human behavior happened. Yeah. Bad judgment happened. Collective behavior, psychology happened. But uh, nary, a, nary a crime, 
you know, nothing, maybe some uh, minor, you know, issues, but, but really there was nothing to, I, I, I recall that uh, our, our, we're not going to call him our hero, but the main character, the governor of Massachusetts tried to pin something on him. It didn't stick because the guy didn't do anything wrong. No. And the market makers were just doing what they were doing. The settlement companies were just doing what they're settling. The, uh, the pavement for order flow is legal. Uh, the fact that the companies involved, the lesser companies that uh, are involved, that their executives sold shares at elevated prices is in bad taste, but it's, it's, it's perfectly legal. So that this was so interesting because it wasn't a Ponzi scheme in a legal sense of any way, shape or form, or a, a outright fraud, accounting fraud a la Enron or uh, others that we've had. It was just this very unique coincidence of circumstances that led to, as you pointed out, not only was the revolution didn't occur, but uh, as you pointed out, the corporate executives made a lot of money because their share prices were artificially inflated. They were able to benefit from that or sell shares. Many of the companies were selling shares at uh, at high price, issuing additional shares. Obviously, the market makers were benefiting from the extra volume. And you, you talked about the brokers, Goldman Sachs and Morgan Stanley, among others. They were writing the call options and the sell options, and boy, did they have a good first quarter of 2021. Oh, because that's the best ever. Yeah, let's very not, profitable let's not, exercise. Let's not let uh, Robinhood and and Citadel and those guys off the hook completely, though. I mean, they there was no criminal conspiracy. There's no conspiracy at all to stop the trading. Uh, there was this this idea that like, well, this thing happened. Oh, it's great when you're when you're losing, then um, you know you just sort of call time out and stop the game, and that's not what happened. Uh, we know that that's not what happened. So, I mean, that, that's the kind of frustrating thing for me is that even today, uh, let's say if I write an article about it for the Wall Street Journal or say something about it, you, you get like a, a you know, dozen strangers on your Twitter feed, whatever, saying, you know, hey, who are you working for? These guys stole from us. And, you know, they, they, they didn't. But what they did do, what they do, and this is like the, the American way of capitalism, is they, they, lobby very, they lobby very hard and they have very slick PR people and they want to keep the status quo going. And the status quo is not very healthy for investors. I mean, what would be, um, I don't think it's ever going to happen, but if you were to, for example, put some speed bumps in the way of uh, this, basically this kind of wholesale, it's turned into a, into a speculation, wholesale gambling, as opposed to investing, uh, then you would slow it down. You would save a lot of young people, a lot of grief and money uh, and cost the likes of Citadel and Robinhood money, but probably if you if you made it a, even a little bit more difficult to just you know buy a stock in a second, open a brokerage account, they lend you the money for a few days before before the money hits your account and you buy uh, stock. As soon as your friend tells you about it, you do it. You know if if you just put a, a, a bit of a speed bump, made people think about it, made people think about just a, even a tiniest bit of cost, even if it's a buck, you know you would have a lot less of this activity and and less money lost and a kind of a more sane market, not to protect the hedge fund guys. I mean, hedge fund guys like the system now. I mean, that, that's the thing is like, they, they kind of like this, but it's, it's just, it's, it's kind of spoiling a generation's uh, financial returns, you know? And so it's, it's, you know, they, and the lobbyists will make sure that it, it never changes, which is just too bad. So before we get to your conclusions, I do want to circle back to one other uh, thing. You indicated that, that Keith Gill, uh, in the book, you indicate he seems to have been fine, but he keeps a low profile. And mm-hmm. so how, how is, I, I want to know how Keith Gill's doing now. Did he get to keep 
he made an enormous amount of money, put in uh, uh, something like $50,000 and walked away with tens of millions. But I, I actually would like him to have that tens of millions. Did he get to keep that money or did it ended up getting lost? Or, or are you, no, he's kind no, of a quiet no, guy. No, is there any no, way of telling? Well, I, there, there is uh, some way of telling. Um, he, um, he cashed out some money. Uh, so he had a, a few million dollars in, in, in cash. And uh, he's about $11 million in cash, I think, at the end of the, the, the kind of the week that everything took place. So that was pretty good. He sold with perfect timing, by the way, uh, about half of the, the uh, stock options that he had. But the way that stock options work is you can sell them for a profit. But you also, if they're in the money, I, if you basically you have the option of purchasing a stock and the price of the stock goes above that price, then you can exercise it. You can say like, okay, I'm going to use it and I'm going to exercise the stock. And so he, he exercised his options. Month, he disappeared for a few months, showed up again in April with one more post and said that he'd exercise his options and bought, I don't know, I think about $30 million worth of GameStop shares. GameStop shares. So uh, that's... I don't know, it's worth, I think, maybe today, maybe 20-something million dollars. So he's not a poor man. The crazy thing is that he could have made, he could have made hundreds of millions of dollars during that week. I mean, he was the center of attention. He was the, the biggest social influencer in the financial world, period. GameStop was the most traded security in the world for days. If he had said, oh, and just put in his, his, his E-Trade statement, like one day bought you know, shares in Acme or options in Acme, and then put that on the screen. The you know shares of Acme would have gone through the roof, and he would have made another fortune, an even bigger fortune. Uh, so he uh, is the one guy in this whole story who who didn't milk this. You know, he just was he was very smart and very brave, and he could have gotten it wrong and just been in so obscure. What what is he doing now? That is, he, has he gone quiet for the last six months since you you wrote the yeah, book? Yeah, yes, he has. Yeah, he is. Uh, he has not had any interviews. He he did a, a single interview. Uh, with my colleagues at the Wall Street Journal, who um, I, I did the same detective work and figured it out. I, I must, I'm sure I wasn't the only one. You could figure out who who he was by connecting a few different dots at the time, and they they and others connected the dots. But they they were uh, the they persevered the most. One of my colleagues drove up uh, from New York in a snowstorm, found his mom. Talked, who who is a Wall Street Journal reader and loves the Wall Street Journal and that you know that really helped us out and you know her phone was already ringing and uh, CNBC and others and uh, and she put our reporter in touch with him and and there's a you know great article if you want to look back January 29th uh, 2021 the interview with him you know that they found him and the picture of him and that that's when it was there were, his name was starting to leak out I I knew the name before that but uh, but that's when the the broad public knew. Who, who he was. And he wasn't really exactly who you'd expect him to be. I mean, his age and the way he looked, he looks kind of like Mike Myers from, uh, you know, um, you know, Wayne's you know, world, a, Wayne's world, you know, but, uh, you know, it's, uh, yeah, but he, so in a lot of ways he was different, superficially the same, you know, he sat in this gaming chair and, you know, drinking beer and gesticulating and all this stuff, you know, and you, you already knew what he looked like, but you, you didn't know anything about him and the stuff about him was, was not, at all what you would have guessed, you know, mm-hmm. um, but now it all makes sense now that you think about it. Any, any linkage? I know you referenced it in your book to Michael, uh, Barry and, and, uh, from the, th- from the big short, they seem to have some things in common. That's right. So, uh, he, uh, was one of the, the early people to notice the value in this stock. There were a couple of other value investors lurking around and 
that the summer that he showed up, which is the summer of 2019 on the social media scene, Michael Burry swept in. Michael Burry is a very well-known name, of course. Christian Bale played him in The Big Short, and that's probably the, the movie probably made him more famous than the book even. And he he came in with a, a big stake in GameStop and wrote a letter to the company about this, 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 that they should change. And that sent the stock briefly uh, going higher. And uh, yeah, he said like, oh yeah, thanks thanks a lot, Burry, for jacking up my cost basis. So basically that was like the first thing is like people thought, hey, you know, you just doubled your money, sell. You know, just made like 40 or 50 grand good for you. And he's like, Oh no, I'm not selling. I'm, I'm upset that now it's more expensive for me to buy more of these. You know, I, 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 this is he, which is the totally the right way of thinking about things in my opinion, but completely the opposite of the way that the people on this, this message board, they thought he was nuts. They, they, they're like, you know, they, they're all like, I go through some of it, but there's just, I mean, so much of it. I couldn't, you know, and a lot of it's really profane, but I mean, basically all the kind of ridicule heaped on him. Yeah, there there is a lot of raw language in the book, not from you per se, yeah. but but uh, a lot of raw language from the participants. You you end the book with your view of the world, and I want to give you, and it's probably not my view of the world, frankly, but you wrote the book, so I'm gonna I'm gonna as we wrap up here, you basically do make some suggestions about how smaller investors, younger investors, and you, you already gave a preview of that comment that you, you're hoping that a generation, a future generation of serious investors hasn't been lost because they got all got burned by this initial episode. But kind of carry it away with what, what you feel people uh, in this moment should do that's the most you know, reasonable, sensible approach to investing in very unreasonable and nonsensical times. Well, let's say you're, you're 25 years old, you have a job, you have a bit of savings, you have a little bit of money saved uh, that you'd like to put in the stock market. Uh, and you're in that cohort that uh, for whatever reason, and it doesn't matter why, that you resent Wall Street, you resent big, powerful financial firms and people who who make money out of thin air by you know passing money from hand to hand. Fine. Here's a way to sort of... Um, anger Wall Street in a way uh, and benefit yourself at the same time. It's a twofer, which is just don't engage with Wall Street. And by don't engage, I don't mean don't invest. That's not what I think people should do. People should invest. But the same technology that made Robinhood possible, the same technology and competition that that allowed $0 commissions to, to happen, that, that made investing so cheap and so and all the computing power that's been devoted towards it, also can work in your favor uh, by, you know, by basically allowing you to, to buy an index fund that costs basically zero, that rebalances itself as you sleep, uh, that you don't have to worry about, on which Wall Street makes almost no money. They're making 0.03% if you buy a Standard & Poor's 500 index fund or a total stock market index fund. And instead of jumping in and out and trading and finding some hot fund manager who charges fees, just do that. Just be passive. Or find a robo-advisor. They'll charge a quarter of a percent to do it for you. They'll do it tax efficiently, maybe stop you from doing some dumb things. Or if you feel like paying a bit more money and you need someone to hold your hand to have a fee-only advisor or a fiduciary, you pay a bit more to do it. But all those things are on the very cheap end of the spectrum on Wall Street. Wall Street, you know, wants you to think that you can beat it, you know, and that's when they, they pick your pocket. Wall Street wants you to think that you're really smart and you can outsmart others. And of course, if you survey people, if you survey a thousand people and say, do you think you're a better than average, whatever, driver, investor, uh, husband, wife, 
80% are going to say that they are. And that's, that's just human nature. And of course, only half are better than the, the, the rest. And, well, and you mean and, Wall Street's not like Lake Wobegon, where everyone's no. above, all the children are above average? <laughs> no, I'm it's not. Shocked. It's, it, shocked. It's, it's the opposite of uh, it's Lake Wobegon with the W O E. It's Wobegon, you know. And so, yeah, I mean, it's the, so that, and that's the weird thing. It's like the opposite of Lake Wobegon because not only are, are not, is it obviously not obvious possible for everybody to be above average, but most people are below average, which doesn't seem possible. But what's average in the stock market? Average is just being passive. You know, if you just sort of passively put your money into a balanced portfolio, set it, forget it, keep contributing, don't look, then you would have done really well over any longer stretch of history. And the the thing is that 80 to 90% of investors don't do that well. Uh, they do more poorly. And they did more poorly by by being more active. So that by basically by buying an expensive fund or switching around or chasing a hot fat or a hot stock or any of of hundreds of mistakes that, that you can make, they uh, did poorly. And it doesn't take a lot. Like think of like compound interest is a really interesting thing because if you just a few tenths of a percentage point here, a few tenths of a percentage point there that you lop off of your returns now and then, you know, can mean that when you're retired, you might have half as much as you should have. That's that's the fact. I mean, it's it, it it's really insidious, um, and it, it's people don't even realize that they're bad investors, or or not. Let's say by bad, I mean like you you know a, a robot could do better than you. You know, a robot who doesn't have any opinion could do better than you. So that's that that is my recommendation for these people. If you you hate Wall Street, you know, starve it of of, of money and just make it serve you. Don't serve it. Given my day job, I would uh, choose to object to certain of your points, but not in this forum, because this forum is for you to to make your argument and present your book. And uh, that book is The Revolution That Wasn't, GameStop, Reddit, and the Fleecing of Small Investors. Spencer, Jacob, thank you so much for for being on the show. It's really a really well-tale told. I, I think I've mentioned this in social media, uh, not Reddit subreddits, but you're a spectacular writer and it's it's really an easy read. So I, I do encourage listeners uh, to pick it up. And I think you will, uh, in addition to lots of movie references and popular cultural references, you will learn about uh, this, this episode, which will go down in history along with some of these other famous episodes one learns about in financial history courts. Of course, as I referenced the Tulip Bubble in 1929 and various other ones, this this episode is, is going to join their ranks and you've written the definitive account. So I, I definitely encourage uh, listeners to get the book. Thank you so much for being on the show. Thank you.